Welcome back to the Atlanta Startup Podcast. This is Lisa Calhoun. I'm the founding managing partner at Valor Ventures. This time of year is so special. We get to look back on the year behind and get excited about the year ahead. One of the things I love to do about this time of year is reflect on the milestones from the current year. And I can think of no better way to do that than to pull from the Valor Archives this session with Atlanta icon David Cummings. David spoke at our VC day to an audience of investors and founders. This was the single highest rated session by our founders, and you'll soon see why. It focuses on the elements of company culture under the founder's control. As you think about your own culture and the type of leader you want to be, I hope you find this incredibly inspiring as well as practical and helpful. Let's jump in. Thanks for joining me, Dave. Thanks for having me. And I love the, I love the PR. Now I know who to hire on the PR side. New information? Not new information. <laughs> so, y'all, we're going to talk about high growth culture. And so I just want to ask you, what is cult- how do you define culture, Dave? Culture is this fun thing that I like. My favorite saying for it is, culture is what the team members do when nobody's looking. And this idea of how you act, how you interact with customers, with clients, with vendors, how you interact with each other. It's sort of a rules of engagement. The vast majority of the time, culture is not well-defined enough. And so as humans, as people, there's lots of gray area. And so I think culture is something that the best companies do it really well. And there is a reason that cult, the word, is a part of culture. I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit. So speaking of founder cults, we won't talk about FDX right away, but I think one of the things we could discuss is for a founder, when you're building a company, this is our founder VIP table over here, Valor Portfolio Founders. A lot of times the founder feels that she is the culture. And I know that you've often been the culture at your companies. How do you scale yourself into culture? How have you learned to do that? So I think one of the important things as the foundation is that culture does emanate from the founder. Absolutely. But culture itself has to be intentional. So we've all walked into offices where you go to the reception desk and behind the desk in big letters, it says our values, words like integrity and words like teamwork. And so the more you see it written on the walls, the less likely it is to be ingrained in the team. <laughs> it's sort of like if somebody comes up to you and says, oh, I'm really funny or I'm, I'm really smart. And then they start talking. If anybody has to preface the conversation with that, the little you know red flags start going up. And so I do believe it emanates from the founder, but I also believe that it needs to be intentional. And I also believe that there is no one right answer. I've seen entrepreneurs that try to be something that they're not. So maybe they think, oh, we need to be like the West Coast and we need to have sharp elbows and super aggressive, or we need to be like that last company that I worked for. And what I found is that the most high-performing cultures are the ones that are most authentic. The founders truly believe it. They've built processes. They've built a system. They've built 
hiring practices. They've built reinforcement and career paths around the values that matter the most to them. So I think it's really important to be intentional. And I think it's important to be authentic as well. So as you've built some of your companies and continue to build, how are you replicating that? What is one one thing you do that makes your companies all have much the same culture? Because as someone who has you know, been your friend for well over a decade, your companies all have one culture. I would push back on that a little bit, but I would agree that there are some commonalities there. So at Pardot, the company that we eventually sold to Salesforce.com, at Pardot, we didn't have a strong culture the first year. And it was one of these proverbial walk through the desert. What does it mean to have a culture? Why well, have a good culture? Read all the Jim Collins books, good to great, built to last. Followed the Jim Collins best practice. Go into a room, take the five or six top leaders in the business, and go through a process of employees in the company that you think best embody the culture. So write down all the values of the employees that are already there that you think best embody the values. And so you got a big laundry list, 20, 30, 40 values, and then go around with the senior team and talk about, okay, from these 20 values, which ones are really the most important and rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat and boil it down to three to five values. And so at Pardot, we did that and we boiled it down to a focus on people who are positive, self-starting, and supportive. So we might want to make it as simple, as straightforward as possible. And then from a business point of view, we had an overarching mantra, which is sort of a parallel to the culture side, but it was really how we operated from a as high a level as we could. And we decided two things. We want to be the absolute best place to work, and we want to be the absolute best place to be a customer. So best place to work, best place to be a customer. And we use those as our guiding lights at the highest level. And then on the people side, a focus on people who are positive, self-starting, and supportive. And so I think having that intentional culture, and I got a bunch of things that we did related to that, when we started subsequent companies like SalesLoft, SalesLoft 1.0 and their culture and their values, they literally said, oh, we're just going to take the part out ones. And so for the first few years of SalesLoft, they said, our values are positive, self-starting, and supportive. And then over time, then they grew quite a list there. <laughs> then they grew and the list got bigger. And, you know, whereas we focus on the word positive, sales law said, well, the way that we really care about it is we want people who are glass half full, slightly different than positive, has some commonality with it. But they did, you're right. They did just say copy paste, positive, self starting, supportive. And then over time, they got more intentional as they grew. You know, one of the things that I think uh, startup culture nationally confuses with culture is money. And I'm getting a few smiles and quite a bit of humor out of watching Elon Musk uh, take some of the, the fun things out of Twitter. Oh, my God, the grief online is really funny. So they're, they're losing their gourmet kitchen, you know, losing massages. <gasps> okay, we've never built like that in the South. No, no, no more sushi chefs at the no, HQ. Even the sushi. Well, okay, you know, my heart goes out to them. But... What I'm curious about is there is this thought that venture back companies bring perks, crazy perks. And do you think perks are culture? How, how do you use perks to influence culture? What's your thinking around that? I don't think perks are culture. I think perks help embody whatever it is that the founders care about for the overall performance of the organization, right? So some companies like Amazon's famous for 
having pretty good perks, but having really high pay. And so Bezos established his framework and he says, hey, we're just going to pay you a lot of money and you'll decide what you want to do with your money. Other organizations say, we're going to pay you really well, like a Google, and we're going to have the most lavish perks that you can imagine. And so from the perks point of view, I don't think the perks are the culture itself. I think perks are just the way that the company develops a vibe and develops a organizational, you know, sort of way they operate. Has there been a favorite uh, perk that you've used in the past that you feel like has really gotten extra mileage from your culture? And during the Pardot days, we were trying anything to recruit talent. So we did take a conference room and turn it into a massage room and had a masseuse on staff as a W-2 employee. We did follow the results-only work environment. So there's a famous book called Work Sucks, dot, 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 and what to do about it. And so as part of that, it's the results-only work environment. So this was 10 years ago. We were having people could work anywhere, anytime, however they saw fit, as long as they achieved the results that were expected of them. In the days of remote work and hybrid and the post-COVID world, it's obviously something that's much more common. But a decade ago, it was quite novel. So I want to open this up after this question to our founders in the room. And if you're currently operating a company and you are the founder, please, you know, ask a question. So I do want to lay those kind of ground rules. But the the last question I had on, on culture is a lot of times people say that they hire for culture fit and we can all understand how that's always the intention, the desire. Sometimes people don't fit the culture. What are some of the signs of a human that is not fitting the culture that you've learned to be sensitive to through your experience? So it alter your verbiage slightly. I wouldn't say culture fit. I would say culture add, right? So no culture set in stone. I believe that the cultures are always changing. And so again, for us, with a focus on people who are positive, self-starting and supportive, we want people who are even more positive, people who are even more self-starting. And so I would tweak that and I would call it culture add versus culture fit. When somebody doesn't fit the culture, <laughs> the stronger the culture is, the more obvious it is when somebody doesn't fit it. So if you're a little wishy-washy as to whether or not they fit the culture, then that's an opportunity to be introspective as to what could be done to make the culture even stronger. What I found is that the strongest cultures actually have a, you know, an element of attraction to them, but that element of attraction to some people is actually a repellent to many, if not most people. I think that's, that is when you know you have a culture that not yeah. everyone will fit. Yeah. And in fact, there are definite people who don't fit. And they know, and that doesn't mean anything's good or bad about them. It's just, they don't fit your culture. And that's how you know you have one. Yes, I agree. So, so it should be obvious. And if it's not obvious, or if it's a little wishy-washy, then I would go back to first principles about strengthening the culture that you want to have, as opposed to which direction the culture is headed currently. So we're going to talk a little bit about smart goal setting, because here we are on the cusp of 2023. And a lot of the founders in the room are setting goals and a lot of those goals have to do with hiring and working with the right people. And so in the context of smart goal setting, before we open it up, do you have any thoughts on how you've learned to set achievable, measurable goals or rewrite them as many are doing? Because the economy right now is so volatile that I feel like for a founder who's, you know, just got their series seed say, 
they're looking at next year and they're like, hmm, it's harder than ever to raise capital. People are very expensive. There's actually a shortage of talent like there generally is in technology. And yet your investors, you know, people like Lisa on your board are just demanding goals. So what would you say in those situations? What have you learned to do about goal setting? I have a bunch of ideas on goals. The first thing that I would say is 99% of the goals that entrepreneurs set, I don't like. 99%. The vast, vast majority of entrepreneurs set goals where they don't have complete control over the outcomes. So I like goals that involve inputs to achieve the desired outputs. Too often entrepreneurs say, oh, I want to you know, add a million dollars of revenue this year. Instead of having a goal that says, I want to add a million dollars of revenue this year, I much prefer the entrepreneur that breaks it down into to achieve this target on the revenue side. We need to make this many phone calls. We need to send this many emails. We need to attend this many conferences and talk to this many people at the conferences. And so I want to see it as things that are completely within the control of the organization. And I want that to be the impetus. Too often entrepreneurs also make high-level goals that are too far out into the future. I would much rather that the entrepreneur makes weekly goals as opposed to three-year goals, right? So what are you going to accomplish this week? We're going to do X amount of phone calls, Y amount of emails. We're going to attend Z amount of conferences. I want it to be as micro-niche focused as possible, knowing that running a process, constantly evolving the process is going to be the best way to achieve the longer term desired outcomes. So I think too often entrepreneurs agree more. go way out, which we're dreamers, <laughs> totally get optimists. it. We're optimists, but I want to see one week goals and then go from there. And you know, what's so great about that, of course, is when you miss a one week goal, it's only a week. It's only a week. And there's a conversation to be had with the team about why we didn't meet it. Do we need to change our goals? What's possible? Um, and, and you can really manage that. Mm-hmm. Whereas managing the $1 million at the end of the quarter, it only becomes a problem sometimes three weeks before the end of the quarter and it's far too late. Yes. I'm also a fan of aspirations, right? So entrepreneurs are like, oh, I want a unicorn billion dollar valuation. Oh, I want to hit a hundred million of revenue. I think that's all well and good, but I also think it's important to have more sub goals on the way there. So one of my favorite sub goals for entrepreneurs is to achieve the revenue requirements to join the entrepreneurs organization. And what's the EO dollar amount? $1 million. $1 million, right? So instead of saying, I want a million dollars as my revenue goal, as an entrepreneur, I want to hear the entrepreneur, or I want to encourage the entrepreneur to say, I want to join EO. That's my aspiration. And that's only a million dollars of revenue. That's a lot different than a hundred million. And then when they join EO, I want them to say, Oh, my aspiration is to be an Inc. 500 company, which is usually two to five million of revenue with a high growth rate, right? So it's more incremental, but it's setting a foundation that does allow for the achieving of amazing things. Absolutely. Well, that's been a great setup. I'm going to now turn over the last 10 minutes to our founders. And what questions do you have? For David and his entrepreneurial experience. How did you screen out for passing for culture like during the interview? We played lots of different experiments out. So for us, focusing on positive self-starting and supporting, and we've 
coached all of our entrepreneurs and explained how we did it and what worked for us, each one of the core values, we would have a line of questioning that would help us arrive at a conclusion without the person necessarily knowing why we were asking the questions. So I'll give you some examples. We would say the typical thing, you know, wherever you worked, we'd do the chronological in-depth survey. So read the top grading book. And then when we would go way back, we would say, where did you go to college? Why did you choose that school? What made you want to go there? And we wanted to hear self-starting at an early age. If somebody said, oh, my mom went there, so I just went there as well, mm, you're out. <laughs> if they said, oh, Georgia Tech's a great computer science program. I've always loved writing code. That was my first choice. And that's why I went to Georgia Tech A+. Plus. That's a check mark. And so each of the ones, positive, self-starting, and supportive, we would have a line of questioning. Another line of questioning we would have would be, take us through your previous employer. What did the company do well? Listen for an answer. What did the company not do well? Listen for an answer. Now, again, we're setting them up. What did your previous boss or your current boss, what did he or she do well? Listen for the answer. What did he or she not do well? Listen for the answer. Some people would say, oh, my boss sucks. They're a horrible boss. Like, I would not recommend them. And they would say that to us. And so, of course, what are they going to say about us <laughs> when they go out to the, you know, their next employer? And some people would say, oh, you know, I didn't see eye to eye with my boss. You know, we clicked in this area and this area we didn't click as well. And so did they say it in a way that was a positive spin on something? Everybody has beef with somebody else, but do they do it in a positive way or do they do it in a negative way? And so we had this whole line of questioning for each of the core values. Awesome question. What's next? Henry. Yeah. Have there been situations where you've hired somebody that maybe was not culture ad, but you've been able to help them adjust to the culture or is that more of like a one and done kind of situation for you guys? I believe people don't change. <laughs> I believe people have a, a 10 to 30% range that they move around in, in whatever the area is. And so we'll give a little bit of work to see what their range is. But generally, by and large, I don't think people change. Isn't that so fascinatingly true? In my experience, who would say that's their experience? And there's, I'm going to ask who wouldn't say too, but is experience kind of people have a range, operating range? And others who would think, no, operating range is very dynamic. Anybody on that side? Curious thought, right? When you get the operating range. Other founder questions for David. How do you think about accountability in sort of this hybrid remote world and what has changed and what are some tips about how to have good accountability, encourage people, but also, you know, encounter hard truths and then make adjustments? So I'm a fan of a process that involves daily check-ins, a process that involves weekly goals, and a process that involves quarterly check-ins. And so the quarterly check-in is what did you accomplish last quarter? What are you going to accomplish next quarter? How can you improve? And how are you following the values? And so if it's abundantly clear what the expectations are, daily check-in, you're always collaborating. You're always aligning on what's most important. Weekly goals. So it's abundantly clear what's expected of you every single week. And then every 90 days, a higher level. What did you accomplish last quarter? What are you going to do next quarter? How can you improve and how are you following the values? I'm a fan of a process that helps achieve what you want, 
with the least amount of friction along the way. And so accountability just emanates from following some process that gets what you want. All right. Last founder question before we put David to some popcorn questions. So Seth. I'm curious if you're familiar with the entrepreneur operating system or EOS. Yeah, of course. I think it's excellent. Yeah. My two favorites are EOS and scaling up or mastering the Rockefeller habits. And I think they're excellent. Rhythm, data, priorities, one-page strategic plans, the whole nine yards. Is that sort of a sequence of EOS? And then that was my question when I was getting at is sort of, do you outgrow that at some point? No, you never outgrow it. I highly recommend both of them. Awesome question. If you don't have an entrepreneurial operating system, well, it's not good. Yeah, you need one. It's, it's, it's competitive out there, as we all know. So little popcorn questions. Absolutely. What's the best thing about building a business in the South? The people have a can-do attitude. People in Atlanta and the South, they just want to do good things and they want to create a great environment for their family. Just, I would say, positive attitude. Just general can-do attitude is, is my favorite part of the South. What's the coolest renovated new golf course in Florida? We have one in the works, but we're about 16 months out. So it'll be a little bit of time. Next time. <laughs> so, um, tell me, what is a technology that you feel is going to change the world? The hot one right now, which I'm completely blown away by, is ChatGPT. Everybody should go on to chat.openai.com, sign up for it. It's free. And then start asking it to do stuff. And it is mind-blowing. How do you get your news? How do you get informed for yourself? I subscribe to a few hundred different blogs. And then the blogs have RSS feeds. And then I use Feedly.com, F-E-E-D-L-Y.com. So I've got an app on my phone. And it's my favorite thing in the world is just to consume information. How do you feel about podcasts? Got any favorites? I love, love podcasts. There's so many great ones out there. My favorite one is Invest Like the Best with Patrick O'Shaughnessy. Highly recommend it. Just unbelievable guests on it. And it's called Invest Like the Best. And you find it in the, you know, the podcast app store. So looking ahead into 2023, what are you most excited about in the economy? And what are you most concerned about? And that's the final question. From the economy point of view, as painful as it is, I do believe that creative destruction is a real thing. There's lots of money and talent and resources that are applied to industries that don't necessarily need that. And there's plenty of industries that are growing fast that do need it. And so looking forward to next year, I do think it'll be tough times for a while. I do think that there's a lot of dislocation ahead. There's several business models that probably don't function for a while, but as an optimist and as an entrepreneur, I think that always breeds opportunity for new companies and new ideas and new opportunities. So I'm excited for 2023. And I think we're going to do a lot of great things. I am excited for it too. I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts and wisdom here with our community. And look, David's going to hang around. Please make sure that you get to know him better. He is here as a part of our Valor community. David is a visionary investor, and everyone knows that about him. He was with us there for Valor Fund One, which is a unique type of person, absolutely, that invests in a Fund One and continued to invest from there. So thank you so much for your support and inspiration. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being a part of the community of courage by listening to the visionary founders and investors on the Atlanta Startup Podcast. 
Subscribe now so you don't miss a single episode of the over 200 investors and founders sharing their insider tips and secrets to growth. Our regular listeners tell us we're the briefing room for the innovation economy in the fastest growing region of the country, the South, and when you subscribe, you become part of the inside circle. The Atlanta Startup Podcast is proudly hosted by Valor VC. Valor is a venture capital firm that leads seed rounds in AI and B2B SaaS startups. If you like the podcast, check out more of Valor's programs for courageous founders and investors, like Startup Runway. Over $100 million in early-stage venture capital is catalyzed through Startup Runway's grant-making program for pre-seed startups. Go to StartupRunway.org to learn more and apply directly for non-dilutive capital. Valor celebrates VC Day, the largest early-stage private capital conference in the region, at the end of the year. Top founders, leading VCs, endowments and family offices attend. Learn more at vc.day. At Valor, courage is the currency of innovation and the heartbeat of our culture. Thanks for listening and join us again next week.